welcome, welcome you today. We're in the study of Philippians. The apostle Paul is chained. Yet the apostle Paul rejoices. Do you get over that yet? Every time you read that, every time you hear that, who does that? Who gets their plans delayed for up to four years and is happy about it? Who's chained to a guard and is happy about it? Paul opens the letter with thanksgiving and prayer before proclaiming that God is sovereign. God is in charge. God knows every situation and circumstance in our life. And then he says, the chains that I have are okay. The inconvenience. Because the gospel is being proclaimed. Again, stop. Stop. Who does this? And yet it's so inspiring for each one of us to be able to go through life and recognize that God is in charge. We don't always understand it, we don't get his timing. We don't even like his plan sometimes. We don't. But Paul saw something different. And you're going to hear the secret today. What made him rejoice? Next, Paul, in this letter, he moves into the weighty exhortation of a letter challenging the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel, followed by a plea of church unity that comes through humility. Paul uses Jesus as our example of humility. You see, living a life worthy of the gospel means working hard to show the results of your salvation. Well, as we went over this in some prior weeks, Paul uses doing everything without complaining and arguing as an example of what working hard to show the results of your salvation looks like. He tried to describe for each one of us what it looks like to walk with God and bear spirit fruit. And spirit fruit means you don't complain or argue. Everyone will know that God is working in us when we do everything without grumbling or complaining I mean, we are going to stick out like sore thumbs because, well, in our culture, it's okay to grumble and complain because there's always something to complain about. Some of us focus on the really, really, really hard and bad situations and circumstances. But there is something that Paul has to offer, something he has learned. And then last week, if you're with us, Paul talked about two very normal guys. As I shared, it's a little hard sometimes to relate to the God-man Jesus, even though he was a man and he was also God. But these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, Well, what happened was, is that they walked with God, and they made a kingdom impact by investing 25 cents multiple times during the day. I said, what? You know what, if you missed last week's message, it it will make sense if you go back and listen to it. But now Paul's intensity seems to grow as we enter chapter 3. In just about all of Paul's letters, what happens is that near the end of the letter, 
Sometimes it's halfway through. Sometimes it's three-quarters of the way through, like in the book of Romans. But he starts to pull out the stops and help us look at things very practically. And so I think Paul is going to say some of the same things he said in the first few chapters, but he's going to say it in a more passionate way. Chapter 3 is amazing. Before we open it, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we recognize you are king. You are sovereign. Lord, that confuses us and comforts us. We wonder, Father, how you will work out all the details. We wonder why our lives are confusing and we, we have to go through difficult times. We would prefer comfort. But God, you know what is best for us. Our world is a little chaotic. The global conflict continues. Conflict within our borders seems to escalate. And we ask you, God, that you would use your church to make an impact and a difference even today. Father, we pray for all the churches, not only in this area, but all over the world that are gathering together, that are lifting your name, that are hearing your word, that are being pumped and encouraged to do life with you and to make a kingdom impact. We pray, dear God, for those specific churches, some of them right in our area. We pray for Wonder Lake, and we pray for Grace Point, and we pray for Life Bridge. We pray for their pastors and and their leaders and for the flock who is there. Empower them, encourage them, and may they be salt and light in our world. Father, we pray for our church. We are so grateful for the, well, the folks you have gathered to lift up your name, to praise your name, to learn from you, to adore you to be convicted and encouraged by your word. We pray for those who are downstairs, those who are teaching our children. It was amazed to see how many kids got up just before we started this message. So God, encourage them, help them understand who you are and bless those who are teaching them. We also want to just say thank you, Father. Thank you for not only the VBS, but the backyard VBS that just happened, well, a week ago. We're so grateful for the staff and the stories and the impact in the back of the Shiloh's backyard. God, you worked. You did something special, and we just want to say thank you. We also want to say thank you for our people's generosity for First Way, the opportunity we have to partner with that organization and make baskets for young moms who have need of supplies. God, thank you that they chose to keep their babies, and thank you that we can walk along with them in just a small way in their journey. We also pray even now, God, for our young adults who are out camping or or maybe they're hiding from the rain. God, I pray that you'll be with Blake and you'll be with the rest of the, the young adults. May this time, God, bring you glory. May there be great conviction. Would there be camaraderie that would grow when we thank you again for the time they were able to go away and to hear and be blessed by your word. We open up your word today now, God, and we ask you to uh, do something special in our own lives. Your spirit is active, and we pray that we would learn and we would apply. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, Paul reminds us that the gospel is critical and knowing your Savior is paramount. Now, wait a minute. 
if you've been at this church or, or you're part of a different gospel preaching church, you're going to say, I have heard the gospel. I get it. You talk about it all the time. You are repeating that story again and again. Are you a broken record? And as soon as I said that, even though Paul's going to say that, I, I just was reminded that there are plenty of people that don't even know what a record is, you know. Um, and, and I know there's a little bit of a comeback right now, but you always knew your record it was done when all it would do was spin and give you the same line over and over and over again. So you'd just physically lift up that stylus or bump it or do something important, and then it would continue. But this is the message that seems to get caught in the groove over and over and over. And Paul is so overwhelmed, so grateful. He's been rescued. Before he met Jesus, he was dead. But he heard for the first time how God loved him enough to send Jesus to die on the cross, to pay our debt so that he might be justified. That God would look at him as holy. He would become part of the family of God. And then he would enable him to become more holy, to be more Christ-like. And Paul keeps pinching himself. He can't believe that he gets to represent God wherever he goes. In a business, in school, in home. Do you believe it, Paul says? I I get to do this. And then when I die, because this world is pretty, pretty short. This, This life is pretty short. I get to spend eternity with God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All of the rest of time. Well, that's kind of crazy because time doesn't exist because it just goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's who I get to spend time with. So that's why Paul's overwhelmed. And that's why, well, sad to say, sometimes we get a little bored of that message. I heard it. You know, Easter we spent a lot of time, you know, just talking about this. I, I get it. But Paul was not um, going to be dissuaded to remind especially the Philippians over and over and over again. Let's open our Bibles. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. All right? We're going to go all the way through verse 11, but we're going to go a little bit slower today. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes this. Whatever happens... My dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. I never get tired of telling you, Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord. Now remember, Paul's time back in Philippi when he first was there, With his friend Silas, that's when he was beat to a pulp. He was put in stocks. And at midnight, he was singing and praising God like who does that? So the people knew about that. Now Paul's still in chains. And he says, I never get tired of telling you rejoice in the Lord. That's not like be happy, throw a party, because I have chains on my wrists. That is Rejoice in the Lord. Whatever the situation you find yourself in, God's grace is your life and your future. Rejoice in your great salvation. All three aspects of it, which we're going to look at in just a little bit. I love using the term, understand this full gospel, but it has negative connotations right now. So what I'll just say is the great salvation, the great gospel, the unbelievable things that Jesus Christ freed us from the penalty of of our sin. And he alleviates the power that sin has over us. 
And that someday he will take away the presence of sin when we're with him forever and ever and ever. We don't even know what that would look like. All we've done is, or all we've had experience in is living in a broken world. Living in a world that sin is rampant. We have no clue of all the things that have affected us. So when he says focusing on our great God and gospel is a lifeline, it brings security. This is how he starts off. Rejoice. So rejoice. Be joyful. I will give you the power to do this. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians I was reading this last week. As I was reading through that book in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 16, Paul says this, always be joyful. Again, not giddy about every situation, but be joyful in the Lord. Never stop praying. Keep talking to God. Keep pouring your heart out to God. And then listen to this. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ. Be joyful. Pray always. And be thankful. Isn't that hard? Isn't that hard? From a simple stubbing your toe. i got to be honest, I have never thanked God after I've done that. You hop around, you moan, you look around and see if Sharon's looking so I can be extremely, you know, in pain. And she ignores me anyway, so I... Don't know what the problem is there. But, but there's never once hit the toe and say, Oh, Jesus, I'm so grateful. But somehow, God works in every one of our situations. Then he goes on in chapter 3. Look at verses 2 and 3. These words are a little odd, but I think they'll make sense in a moment. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say, you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who truly circumcise. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. He says, watch out for the dogs, the pack of feral street dogs that are in your church. Now, again, in our culture, every time someone reads a text like this, we are thinking about Fido, all right? Your long, loving, wonderful pooch. I, this is not what Paul's referring to. He's, he's referring to back in that culture, d- dogs, <laughs> for the most part, um, they were nasty, unclean, and dangerous. They ran around in packs, and they weren't considered pets. Dogs, in this case, were the religious who added circumcision to the gospel. People who do evil. Now, if we're reading this, and we're looking actually even in the context about the Pharisees, about the Judaizers, about the religious, those that wear the white robes, those that walk around being very, very holy or looking holy, we would never put them in a camp of people who do evil. Most folks in that culture would say, oh, there is a very righteous man. He must be very holy. Paul is shocking the Philippians right here. And he's basically calling these religious people, these Judaizers in this camp, these folks who are adding to the gospel message. He's calling them street dogs. They are dangerous. Stay away. These folks have added to the gospel, which I want to remind you has offended God. 
Just so you know. Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross and died because all of us are lost. We cannot work. We cannot please. We cannot gain access to God by anything we do. These guys were around and says, hey, you know what? That cross was pretty good. That Jesus dying, that was cool. But you know what? If you really want to, well take a step, and and be part of God's family. You have to be circumcised. (laughs) Well, if you read this, Paul's words seem harsh and unloving in today's climate of tolerance and diversity. Sad to say there are folks in the church who consider it unloving and divisive to point out doctrinal error or sin in the camp. Here in Philippians, Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride and interprets it as the surest sign that they actually are not part of God's family. In fact, they are nasty, unclean, and dangerous. Stay away. Now, let me try to put this in perspective. Uh, circumcision back before the cross was done or performed in order to reflect an inward reality, just like baptism does for us today. But neither circumcision nor baptism is a pathway to salvation. Then Paul says only those who worship. Almost all the translations will translate that word worship. But That specific word carries with it a little bit more baggage. Uh, It's a little bit fuller of a word. And it almost should be translated worship slash serve. So I would say something like this. Only those who worship slash serve by the Spirit are God's family. He's talking about a life devoted to God through spiritual service. Almost like Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Where Paul says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all of the things he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Paul Paul is just saying back in Romans 12, and say, hey, Give your bodies. Serve the Lord. It's an act of spiritual worship. You see, the Spirit only indwells the redeemed and enables them to worship and to serve. You know, the authentic family of God becomes the family of God by relying on Christ's work so we can boast about Christ. The true family of God that has come to God by faith, and there's so many of you right here, put no confidence in human effort. But then Paul says this. He goes, if anybody could, if anybody could put confidence in behavior, I'd be at the front of the line. So look at verse 4. Though, Paul's writing, I could have confidence in my own effort, if anybody could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now again, not sure we can fully appreciate these lists of accolades and accomplishments, especially if you're newer to the faith or you have no idea what's important to a Jew. But being a full-blooded Jew was special in this culture. He mentions he was circumcised. He was pure-blooded. He was a Hebrew actually from the tribe of Benjamin. Woo! His religious accomplishments were off the charts. Pharisee, 
unbelievable. You want to Google something, Google what it means to become a Pharisee. It will blow you away. All that they do, they memorize the rules, the regulations. Man, it's just like, are you serious? You know? But he was also zealous. He thought he was obeying God. Zealous to wipe out the church. And his obedience to law was flawless. You know, there's over 600 commands. I'm pretty sure he didn't follow every, but, but to him, he's pretty close. This dude was high and mighty. In fact, these qualities were impressive to those Judaizers. They knew all this. They thought this was right on. Got to tell you a story. Uh, recently I was up at camp and, and checking in on some of the staff and some of the family and hearing what God is doing up at Silver Birch. And I was in line um, actually at the sweet shop at the canteen. My family was ahead of me and there was a girl behind me. And like normal, I just talk, you know. So I turned around and just started a conversation. Where are you from? What are you doing? What are you looking forward to after camp? Hey, you made some of these decisions. That's where I went. And this is what she says. Please don't judge me. Okay, I'm going to explain the story. She says, I can't wait to show my pig. You can't wait to show your pig. Oh, yeah, I'm from Walworth County, and I am telling you, man, I've been preparing, I've been, and I can't wait to show my pig. I'm from Chicago, all right? And I have somewhat of an idea, but, and then she went on and told me all the things she does to show a pig. And I just want you to know, I, I hope she does well, you know, I do. But I think this was a little bit like she was telling me all the things and how important it was. I had no clue what's going on. And I think that's a little bit as we look at Paul. We say, okay, Paul was pretty good. But we don't have any idea how amazing he was and how much his life changed when he met Jesus. Let me cast Paul's accomplishments in Judaism in perspective. Let me say it this way. This isn't biblical. This is just my uh, idea of trying to help you understand how amazing Paul was and how none of that mattered. Let's just say this. Paul had been born into an elite family. Let's say he was a Kennedy. He had accomplished much, considered successful. He was an Eagle Scout, homecoming king, captain of the polo team, valedictorian, a full scholarship to an Ivy League school where he graduated at the top of his class. He had a beautiful, loving wife. He became a CEO at 25, a governor at 30, and had a portfolio worth billions of dollars. Not millions. But after meeting Jesus, he realized that in comparison to knowing Christ, everything he had accomplished turned out to be filthy rags, rubbish, useless, dung. Let's read Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, or this would be dung or manure, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ 
and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul once thought the pedigree and the accomplishments were valuable. But everything he used to see as valuable is now worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. Paul is shocking the religious by saying, I am tearing up and throwing out with the trash the very credentials that you are waving around as if there were something special. Paul uses a term that sometimes is referred to as animal or human excrement. The vulgarity of the term is deliberate. As Paul wants to strike us with the worthlessness of a life apart with Jesus. You see, you can have the bread of life and will be eternally satisfied, or you can settle for a pile of dung right now. You see, value is not found in religious self-efforts, earthly praise, or possessions, but it is found in the in, with the intimacy of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus, of becoming intimate with Master Jesus, everything, 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 everything I thought was valuable isn't valuable. It's manure. Paul wants to gain Christ so that he can become one with him. A relationship with Christ will be a gain. Literally, again, if, if I could maybe reword this to be a little bit more understandable, I would reword it like this. My life will be profitable if I have a rich relationship with Jesus. Becoming one means spending so time with so much. <laughs> Becoming one means spending so much time with Jesus that if others see you or me, they see Jesus. The only way to reflect our Lord well to others is by spending time with him, letting him rearrange, letting him take away the things that don't mirror him well. Now, Paul goes back to the gospel. Isn't that something? He just, again, reminds everyone, I became righteous. I became part of God's family through faith, not through religion. This relationship began by faith, and God justifies me by faith. Paul quickly makes two important points in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Regarding justification, these are terms, again, we use often. They're important for you to understand. And sanctification. You see, Paul is overwhelmed by the gospel because here's the dilemma. Only righteous people are going to heaven. And the Bible tells us there are no righteous people. Therefore, we need another source of righteousness. And that's why the gospel is good news. That's why Paul keeps talking about it. That's why Paul can't stop talking about it. I was dead. I'm alive. I have no future. I have a future. Believers have received the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ alone. We call this imputed righteousness. This is the opposite of a works-based righteousness or self-righteousness. Everyone on this planet needs another righteousness, God's righteousness. Verse 9 speaks of justification. Speaks of 
a Savior that died so that we might have eternal life. Verse 10 speaks of sanctification. How as we walk with God, he chips away all the things that don't reflect him well. And over a lifetime, we begin to mirror Jesus better. And verse 11 speaks of glorification, freedom from the presence of sin, where we are glorified and spend eternity with our God. So if you aren't a Christian, you need to be justified. You need to count, you need to be justified, counted righteous before God. Otherwise, you face condemnation and will be separated from God. If you're a Christian, you need to pursue greater intimacy with Christ. Enjoy the lifelong process of sanctification, culminating in eternal glorification. Now here's some of my favorite parts in all the Bible. We're going to focus now in this next section on three things Paul believes are valuable. In perspective, Paul has three priorities in life which will help him grow and experience God differently. First of all, Paul wants to know Christ better. He wants to become more intimate with Christ. Now, this is a guy that's been walking with God a long time. This is actually near the end of his life. And instead of getting bored with the relationship, (laughs) he's more excited about the relationship. The more time he spends with Jesus, the more fulfilled he is. Now, Now, to help us understand this, let's go back to being a college freshman. And, and if, if you weren't in college or didn't go that route, high school freshman, that's when you noticed Esmeralda, all right, back then. She was so out of your league, but she accepted the offer of coffee. And when you met, the fireworks began, as did the greatest relationship ever. Your priorities and plans all changed after that cup of coffee. Now, what I want to say is this. Jesus is way better than Esmeralda. As you spend time with him, you joyously change your priorities and plans. Not because you have to, but because you get to. There's no shortcut to a relationship and to intimacy. Other things will fight for your affections, even good things. But you'll have a choice over and over. Do I spend time with Jesus, learn from him, understand who he is, Or do I spend my time doing things that aren't so profitable? You see, when things are good with Jesus, things are good. Puts it in perspective. D.A. Carson. uh, Probably doesn't mean much to some of you, but but an amazing teacher, amazing professor over at Trinity. He says this. Paul recognizes that in God's universe, the most important thing is to know God. Knowing Christ as your Lord is more important than politics, sports, movies, social media, and even family. And we have come to know him by looking away from ourselves and looking to Christ as our righteousness. J.I. Packer, another commentator, puts it like this. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into a place in their own accord. What is your main business in life? Is it to pastor a big church? Is it to make money? Is it to get married? Is it to be entertained? Everything in life flows from this fountain knowing Jesus. Paul then says, he wants to experience the mighty power that raised Christ. What is he talking about? 
This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to every believer. The power he's talking about is power over death, power over sin. Although Christ did not sin, he carried the sin of each one of us in that sacrifice. And when God raised him from the dead, he conquered death. And what Paul is saying is this, I want to experience that same mighty power. Sin doesn't have to rule over me. Sin doesn't have to be my master anymore. I have a new master. I don't have to succumb to the temptation. I don't have to listen to the enemy. You have given me power and authority, and I can live victoriously. And then Paul says, I want to suffer with Christ, sharing in his death. Now, if we're honest, most of us, especially those who've been walking God for a little bit, we say amen to the first two. Yeah, I want to know Jesus. Yeah, I want to experience his mighty power. I'm sick of always being defeated by sin and its power over me or his authority over me. But you know what? I'm not so sure I want to do this suffering thing. Now, to be clear, we shouldn't read this as if Paul enjoyed suffering in and of itself. That's not what he means. Rather, he understands that believers will encounter suffering and sorrow when we follow Jesus and obey God. And for Jesus, it even meant going to the cross. You see, Jesus walked with his father, and suffering was literally the fruit of his obedience. Let me share with you some things. You know what? If you follow Jesus, you spend time with Jesus, you start looking a little more like Jesus, you start responding to people like Jesus would respond to, hey, read through the Gospels, but this is what's going to happen. There's going to be persecution. The enemy is at work. Enemy doesn't like that. So you will suffer. As you read through the scriptures, you will also suffer because there will be a lack of comfort for you, period. When you focus on the kingdom, when you focus on others, you are not focusing on you. Therefore, you will suffer. You will have less time for you. You have less money for you. You will have less, uh, fill in the blank. You obey God, you will suffer. There will also be rejection. Rejection. And this is exceptionally hard. Maybe some good friends and maybe family members are not understanding. Not that you are some jerk. But if you have different priorities and you have a different time schedule. Oh my word. There are some that really struggle with that. You know, it's hard to talk about suffering and not mention chastisement. It's a time when we choose to run from God, a time when we choose to rebel, a a time when we choose to sin, the Bible calls it. And yes, we can confess our sin, and yes, we can be forgiven. But if we run from God, God says he will chastise, he will spank, and he knows how to do it. I, I don't know how he does it for you in particular, but I know how he spanks me in the different ways. Now again, you'll suffer. I will suffer, especially if you read through Hebrews chapter 12. Because every father who loves his son or daughter, when they run from his perfect plan, will punish them. Now, our relationship grows as we suffer, no no matter what the situation. So what Paul really is saying is he, he doesn't mind suffering if his intimacy grows. 
Suffering is worth it. Actually, you'll find joy in it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul even starts off in that scenario and says, hey, I just want you to know that one of the reasons that you're going to suffer is that you'll experience God's comfort. And when you experience God's comfort, you know what's so cool about this? You'll be able to use this same comfort when other people go through tough times. Suffering forces us to go to God quicker, and that's always good. Suffering helps us feel God's presence. That's awesome. Suffering gives us the tools to encourage others during their tough times. How wonderful is that? And I think one of the big reasons suffering puts life in perspective. Life is short. It's not about these 60, 70, 80 years down here, folks. It's, it's not. How do you live it and how do you invest it? And what I have learned and I think what Paul is saying is that we learn that his presence is enough. That Jesus is enough. Again, we don't understand timing. We don't understand ways. We don't understand all the details. But what we do understand is when we're hurting, we have an unbelievable God with unbelievable arms. So here's my question as I close up. What is valuable to you? What is valuable? What do you value the most? What is important enough to change your priorities and plans? And, and you may honestly say, well, Rick, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I guess I couldn't put what's important to me in one sentence. Well, let me help you. Usually, you can tell what's valuable to you by looking at your calendar and your checkbook. Now, this doesn't follow every scenario, but, but that helps. It helps us understand what's important, what we value. You know what Paul said? You heard it. All those things I worked for, all those things I got the accolades, all those accomplishments, all the things that, whoa, I was rocking the world with. It's garbage. The most important thing for me, Paul says, I, I just want to sit at Jesus' feet. I, I want to be like Mary, to choose to sit at the feet, to listen, to hear, to let God change me, to allow his priorities to become my priorities. The way he talks to people, the way I want to talk to people. The way he forgives, that's how I want to do it. The way he served, that's how I want to do it. Jesus, I want to learn from you. And the only way you do that, and the only way I do that, is by walking with God. Ultimately, I guess as you leave today, one of the things I guess I just want to encourage you is to remind you how important the gospel is, how amazing our God is, and what standing you have as a result of his grace. Paul never, ever gets tired of talking about that. And then to encourage you to walk with God. You see, we have a choice every day. We come to a crossroads. How am I going to use it? Where am I going to spend my time and my treasure and my talents? And you will probably regret focusing on yourself. But you will never, ever regret sitting at Jesus' feet. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Would you, would you bow your heads and, ju and just shut your eyes? You know, realistically... God's word is powerful. It's convicting. It's encouraging. And, and I sense even today 
that there are some who have made some decisions and said, you know what? I'm focusing on things, well, that aren't going to last. If God is moving in your heart right now, if God is convicting you, if God is encouraging you, I'd like you to stand, if you would. And I'm going to pray for you in a moment. But if God is working, if God is doing something right now, convicting, strengthening, I would ask you to stand. Father, your word is powerful. Your word encourages and convicts. And God, I have to admit, I'm not at the place that Paul was at times in my life. At times, Father, I choose temporary. I choose selfishness. I ask you, God, that you'd continue to give me a clear perspective. That as I spend time with you, you chip away the things that don't bring you honor, that don't glorify you, that don't magnify you. Father, forgive us, forgive me for focusing on things that are temporal, for focusing on my own stuff. God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be able to call you Father. We pray even now you would give us strength and wisdom that we would hear your voice clearly and that we would be relentless when you tell us to do things. Would people who hang out with us Know that God is working because we wouldn't normally talk or do the things that you do in our lives. We love you, Father. I pray especially for these who are standing. I pray, dear God, that you would protect them. I ask you, God, that that whatever way you're convicting them, that you would give them strength and power. We pray that you would defeat the enemy. We thank you for their tender hearts and we would ask God that they would leave absolutely different because of what God is doing, what you, the Spirit, is doing in their lives right now. Would you all be seated, please? And God, we just thank you for this church. Continue to work, continue to change us as we glorify and worship you. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship?